Tonight I'm going to talk about a kind of samadhi, a kind of concentration called absorption. And the Pali word is jhana, J-H-A-N-A. And it's it's kind of a follow-up to uh, Richard's talk when he talked about samadhi and insight. Um, And to give some framing for um, how to go even further into uh, concentration or samadhi. And then maybe a little pointer in how that's useful in developing insight. Um, And just some perspectives on this topic. One of the first things to say about um, practicing jhana or absorption um, is that throughout this talk, you might find that you get triggered into an achieving mind or a measuring mind, wondering if you've been there, if you could get there, if somehow you're broken and you can't get there. Um, It's one of the uh, shadow sides of this particular topic. Uh, especially in the West, because we have a dominant culture that strives for individualistic uh, perfection. I'm going to try not to give you the fuel to do that, um, but it's it's so in this territory that um, uh, it behooves you all, uh, which means it puts little hooves on you. <laughs> so get your hooves on, because it behooves you to know that that's a common misperception that you're supposed to strive towards some future state or that if you ever happen to accidentally have one of these states you're supposed to cling to it and then as it disappears in your rear view mirror your practice is decaying. Um, These are conditioned states. They're not meant to be permanent. They rise out of conditions. They don't arise out of you, in that moment, out of your effort. But they can arise out of the conditions we cultivate. So uh, striving really backfires. But through the lens of how we see the world, when we start talking about meditating towards specific states, cultivating um, specific states, uh, that striving kicks in. And it's really tormenting. I wish you all to have the experience of jhana, and I know that it will be somewhat of a curse, although it will motivate you to do uh, future retreats hoping to repeat it, which (laughs) as a byproduct of getting you to practice, but uh, eventually you have to let go of them. I'm still trying to let go of a few that happened a long time ago (laughs) for me. But it it shows the clinging and the striving even to dharma, clinging and striving even to uh, Buddhism or Dharma or beautiful states is suffering. So uh, it comes with a caution right on the label. <clears throat> uh, striving ahead. Uh, be careful. So uh, before I go on this particular topic, <clears throat> I thought I would just touch on, a, on, a, on a, an amazing thing that happened that's impacting us in this room right now. And uh, it's its own beautiful uh, reflection with some tragedy in it. But um, 
about a uh, hundred and fifty years ago, <clears throat> the British Empire had uh, conquered India, and then it was starting to sweep around through eastern India, and its next country that it was going to uh, engage with was the country of Burma. And <clears throat> then in, I think it was 1826, there was a war and it conquered Lower Burma, and the Burmese were not uh, uh, confused by what was coming next. They saw this empire expanding and taking over. And so they worried that um, if they didn't do something in response to what was happening, uh, the dominant culture that was coming, the British culture, would undermine um, people's access to Buddhism. And they saw it happen in other countries. They heard tale of it happening in other countries. And then there was another war and the British took over Middle Burma and then the high north where the capital was at that time was next. So there was a, a radical movement to exp um, give lay people the ownership of the full teachings. And at that point, um, uh, most lay people were like us, living busy lives. Uh, there weren't Vipassana retreats for lay people. And it may be if you liked meditation, you might go a little further than most people. But most people, their practice was a devotional practice uh, and an ethical practice. Um, but mostly it was the monastics that would go a little deeper in. And even then, not a lot of them went deep into the Vipassana practices that we're practicing here. Um, you had to actually work hard to find somebody who had done that practice and could teach you. But they worried that the British were about to take over Burma and um, if they didn't do something, uh, the Buddhism there would be crippled uh, by this dominant British culture. And so they, they did something quite radical. They started exposing lay people to uh, Vipassana practices and teachings. And they found that people actually could do it. It was, it was uh, different, but they actually could do it and get good insight. And then they, they held the full treasure of what the Buddha had to offer versus letting the monastics hold it while they supported them. And that impacts the fact that uh, I don't see any monastics. Well, you might be hiding it uh, under your lay clothes. You might be stealthy monastics, but we're in a room full of lay people who are going deep into uh, these Vipassana practices, these insight practices. And um, that actually would have been very uncommon um, 150 years ago, that uh, you'd even be in a room with several lay people doing that, uh, let alone 90. So the reason I bring that up is that <clears throat> um, before, the, before that movement happened, most people would progress. They would be raised with a sense of uh, ethics and generosity. They would be shown devotional practices, which would be soothing. Um, and then if they, if they liked it, they would go into what's called samatha practices. And the samatha practices are like loving kindness or just breath awareness, keeping it simple, not doing a lot of analysis and letting your mind and heart come into uh, more peace and more presence. Um, and if you had a proclivity for that, or if you were monastic and that was uh, what you were drawn to, then you might go further and be shown Vipassana practices, not just talk about them or reflect upon them, but actually study the stream of your mind and see these truths uh, in your mind. So <clears throat> the practice of absorption would have been actually more common 
And now you can go to Burma and mostly what people are practicing, if they're practicing formal meditation, is a vipassana practice, insight practices, looking at their minds and not doing so much about absorption anymore. So I happened to uh, practice with Sayada Upandita, who was in one tradition that um, tried to use uh, the power of mind to do strong analysis of what was happening so you could see your own confusion. And then I went to a second monk, uh, Paok Sayada, and he had this revolutionary idea of going back to what he thought was more original, um, back to what had been uh, codified in uh, Sri Lanka, um, about a thousand years after the Buddha lived, they wrote a book, the Svasudhi Maga, that Richard talked about. So he was trying to bring that back and met resistance because now the dominant culture in Burma was um, you had to go deep into Vipassana before you would get a lot of uh, Samatha practices. And you would meet um, meditators who had done more time doing Vipassana practice than absorption practice. But I felt very blessed to have stumbled across uh, the Pauk Monastery and to have a chance to see what the Samatha practices were. So Samatha um, is a style of practice and Vipassana is another. And the role of Vipassana is to cause uh, insight into how our minds are working. And the role of Samatha practices um, is to calm the agitated heart and mind and collect it, and also strengthen things that are uh, lacking or deficient in your mind. So if you don't have a lot of loving kindness in your mind, you would practice that because you wanted that strength. Or if you didn't have a lot of faith, you would practice that. If you didn't have, uh, there was a lot of craving in your mind, you'd practice in a way to diminish the craving. So the samatha practices play a role of balancing your mind, strengthening things that are, um, you notice in your your practice that you keep um, being dominated by a certain um, uh, hindrance. So then you develop a practice to balance out your mind. And and it was, was, it's a very, um, it's a very benevolent way to practice because uh, joy and happiness and balance is the mode at which you're supposed to practice the Samatha practices. And um, I think we've talked a little bit, or I've talked before about finding this very far into the path that um, happiness and contentment wouldn't be some type of payoff down the road, but actually could be how I was practicing. And I was taught to um, be as aware of contentment and cultivating contentment as I went through my day versus ardency and take what comes and just breathe into the pain. Um, That learning and letting contentment teach me uh, about uh, if my mind was balanced or not. And seeing that clinging to contentment uh, would always backfire, but cultivating contentment, not out of clinging to it, but out of appreciating it. Um, really helped soothe a lot of agitation in my heart and mind. And so practicing for um, uh, the the tranquility of mind, if that's that's the, the style of practice you're doing, it has its own place in our tradition. And um, 
what they ended up doing is, is using the breath and trying to use it to do two things at the same time. Use the soothing nature of the breath, for example, to calm your mind, and then use the, uh, the fact that your breath was constantly coming and going to teach you about impermanence. So this one meditation object, the breath, could be used for both, and they tried using it in a combined way so that you would be developing some concentration and some insight as you went along. That's some of what Richard uh, pointed to, and uh, if I understood him, he said, yeah, just doing, just doing mindfulness of breathing helped on both sides of the equation, calming my mind, and that calming helped me have insight, and the insight helped me kind of uh, re- change my priorities, and then that helped calming my mind, and that helped with insight. So you can practice that way, in just a uh, merged way. Um, uh, but you can also practice them in distinction to bring about qualities and to bring about um, either insights or tranquility. You don't have to practice them in a merged way. And the benefit of doing that is that sometimes it's simpler not to try to merge them. Sometimes it just keeps it simple. I'm, I'm, my intent here is to watch the mind in motion and see how it trips up and how it uh, frees itself. And the other is, the priority is, well, what helps soothe my mind? How could I just be more simple? Um, and sometimes investigating the mind complicates the mind, or keeps the mind in a complicated frame. So you can either do them in a merged way, or uh, if you've ever done a lot of sailing, you tack into the wind. So first you go left, then you go right, you're making headway, but you go for calm, and you use that calm to see more clearly, and then you go for calm. So I'm not sure if any of you are uh, sailors, but uh, there's a way of tacking, and you can tack for as long as you want in one direction and tack the other way. So you could spend the next 10 years just doing samatha practice. Most of you are lifers. Uh, you wouldn't be out on a one-month retreat if you're still nibbling on the edge. Although you might have visited a few experiences where you're doubting whether you're, <laughs> yeah, I thought I was a lifer, and then uh, stuff got real. Um, <laughs> so uh, tonight is talking about, um, I'd like to talk a little bit more about um, cultivating absorption, cultivating uh, this word jhana, which we often translate into English as absorption. And it's a type of samadhi. So uh, samadhi, uh, samatha practices, are the style of practices, and uh, samatha, um, samadhi, is, are their goal. And so um, the simple definition of samadhi is non-distractedness. But when you actually start uh, looking at uh, samadhi um, in and of itself, it's not just non-distractedness, that's one feature. But there are other things that, that grow in uh, samadhi that I think is important to notice um, rather than just non-distractedness. There's a type of wholeness in samadhi because your mind isn't split between two things and maybe you're enjoying the circus of your mind and it's going all over the place, but it's, it's a, a choppy mind. It's a mind that's considering many things. Um, and if it's considering many pleasant things, you're getting the pleasure out of many things, but the underlying experience is a mind that's somewhat split, somewhat shattered. Um, even though it's enjoying many things, there's an underlying restlessness 
in the enjoying of many things. And there's an instability of that mind. It's a little more vulnerable to its split attention being actually taken up by something hijacking it. It's very hard to hijack the mind when it has one frame, but if it's lost between things, uh, the relationship between all those things is not very strong. And so something passing through can grab your mind. Uh, but when you learn to actually absorb it in one direction, it's hard to um, tease it. So you get the wholeness, you get the non-restlessness. There's a type of um, peace and well-being as samadhi deepens. Um, uh, and it feels like a peace and well-being that's rising up from within. And that makes it less conditional. It still is conditional, but if your peace and well-being is coming from uh, sensory experiences, those are actually very fickle. But when your your heart is in a state of um, something that's more influenced by samadhi, there's a little bit more steadiness, not as much fracturedness, not as much restlessness. Um, and you start to actually notice the power of your heart is actually quite, um, quite beautiful and quite powerful. When it's scattered, um, it's diffuse. But when the heart and mind begin to feel more unified, you get surprised by the power of your own heart to be steady, to be non-distracted, to be noble, to be at ease. Um, that's much harder when the mind is scattered uh, to feel that um, saturated well-being that comes through the samadhi. So that's what um, is the, that's what I discovered is more the flavor when you're doing um, absorption practice or samadhi practice is that you're cultivating a lot of well-being here and now by not being scattered, by not being half-hearted, um, by feeling a potential of your heart that you never could access because it was always fragmented and scattered. Um, so you start to be you know, in awe of the heart inside of you, not in somebody else, not in some Nobel Prize winner's heart, but in your own heart, which you never could imagine, it starts to actually uh, be profoundly beautiful um, in states of uh, samadhi and concentration. One more um, distinction is as we're practicing for this wholeness of attention, um, it does take uh, some building of wisdom to know how to do that. So you have to learn about your heart and mind to learn how to settle it. You have to sort of see the um, see through the the illusions of all the cravings that they're really not uh, as valuable as you might have thought. And so it does take some wisdom coaching to guide your heart and mind uh, to seek its contentment out of a simple wholeness in the stream of the present. So wisdom develops as you're developing uh, samadhi. Um, and then uh, as you develop samadhi, the reason that it's so beneficial to insight is that um, distraction and restlessness and fatigue um, are temporarily put aside 
And so that heart and mind, where, wherever you point it, you can actually start to get a, um, a prolonged presence where you can study a stream of mind without just trying to stay consciously in that stream. So it becomes a little less effortful to stay present. Your mind ends up being in the stream of the present. And from there, you can actually uh, get intimate with something that's harder if you're constantly being shaken around. So if I were asked you to memorize the details of this room, um, you could look around, but if I came behind you and shook you, it'd be harder, you know, you could be harder to actually see things because your frame of reference, your reference is so agitated. But if you calm yourself down, you can begin to appreciate the details of the wood and the walls and the colors and the shading. Um, so that steadiness and non-distraction, a type of contentment inside. From there, trying to look at the comings and goings of Vedna, you can actually sit back um, in a really comfy seat, got your popcorn there, and you actually can begin to look at Vedna and see it's arising, it's staying, it's decay, and it's passing. You can actually watch a whole arc of pleasure come and go. And that's very instructive. You know, if you're only getting glimpses of it while you're being shaken around, it takes a while to get all those snapshots organized into the movie and really convince yourself how transitory pleasure is. But if your heart and mind are fairly steady, you can actually begin to notice um, a stream of mind and then learn how your mind is actually behaving. So this is why people would spend uh, many years doing samatha practices before they try to do insight practices. And if you're a lifer, um, if you're going to do it for a long period of time, um, that's, the, that's their, their approach. Um, rather than just doing this combination forever, um, you might take some time and learn, how does my own heart and mind settle? And what keeps it from settling? And what if I made settling the priority more than... Um, uh, grappling with my mind all the time and all the ways it's distracted. You know, many of you are trying to settle your hearts and minds even as we do it because you're, you're, that's the, com, the combined mode of doing awareness practices and, um, or settling practices, getting your attention whole. And then we've been giving instructions to point out how does intention arise, how does Vedan arise, can you notice these different aspects of mind. Those lead more, a little bit more towards insight. So you've all been doing this, but there might be a time when you're interested uh, not in um, understanding how the mind works and its complexities, but you just want to take on this one, uh, this one type of practice or use the practice you're already doing more for its collectedness, more towards how it um, uh, unifies your heart and mind. That's often what um, the loving-kindness practice is. There are, there are many reasons to do the loving-kindness practice. Um, sometimes it's to strengthen loving-kindness as a factor in your heart and mind, which is you know, a beautiful intention. But loving-kindness practice is um, oriented with a priority towards um, sinking into a simple practice, a simple devotional practice I'm just going to simply say these phrases. I'm not trying to be hyper-analytical. Um, if I'm stuck, I might take some time. Why am I stuck? But then I let go of all that, and I just see if I can 
uh, be content saying one simple phrase at a time and be really humble about it, but still devoted. This is my humble, devoted best. Just saying one phrase at a time and trying to welcome that, that tonality forward. So loving kindness practice is a classical samatha practice. Insights come along um, and they're to be valued, but the intent is to see if you can get your mind into this, uh, this stream where you're just content with doing loving kindness practice. Um, the breath can go either way. It's an insight practice and um, a, a samadhi producing practice. Um, but what you do with the breath is you would just see if simple breathing was all that you needed. It's like becoming more and more like a rock or a mushroom, less complicated, less humanly complicated. And I'm just simply breathing. And I'm seeing if I can be content while doing something as simple as that. And that's all I'm doing. I'm not doing anything more complex than uh, letting one breath at a time um, give my whole attention, devote my whole attention, rest my whole attention in something as simple and obvious as breathing. The elements in the body are also a dual practice. Um, You can use the elements in the body for insight to see their transient nature because the body is not a very stable object. Or you can be in your body and absorb your attention into your heartbeat and feeling your heartbeat in your hands. And you simplify yourself. It's sort of the opposite of American culture where you're not gaining in potential and complexity and power and mastery. You're letting go, you're letting go, you're letting go to the place where you let go so much that just the feeling of your heartbeat in your hands is a world unto itself and it's completely satisfying just to have simple heartbeat. When you start to um, give yourself more over to something simple and direct and you devote the whole of your heart to this one simple endeavor, at times you're gonna, the conditions will be ripe where for some stream of time, you're not that distracted and you have a sense of contentment and even interest in something like heartbeat or something like one breath or something like one sincere metaphrase. You can ruin that moment by saying, oh my God, I'm absorbing, this is awesome, I've been waiting for this, now it's finally happening, I'm really getting somewhere. And then you feel all the agitation and uh, that was the predominance of my practice when I was in Burma, um, (laughs) was to pounce upon any moment of absorption and try to grab it like a bucking bull. And it was a totally calm bull until I got on its back. And then it just was trying to throw my ego off. And my ego was like, I finally absorbing, I'm absorbing. I'll have something to tell the teacher and get that nice moment of praise. Um, and then learning not to do that. And that was a whole learning about, uh, I'm not doing my absorption for my teacher. I'm not doing it for their praise. I'm not doing it to get an A in Buddhism. 
I'm doing it because in that moment, it's a relief from a scattered mind, a fragmented mind, a haggard mind, an exhausted mind, a mind that's constantly seeking and can't find what it knows is possible through all these many channels and possibilities. I'm absorbing my attention, something like the breath, for me. Because that's the greatest gift I can actually give my heart in this moment, is to give it a a moment of peace from all this egoic activity. When I went, I think I might have mentioned this before, but when I went to the Pauk Monastery, um, I just come from uh, Upandita's monastery, and there is something about insight practices that challenge our conventional view, and until they they help you let go, um, in that challenge, they're kind of uh, they can be um, fatiguing or disturbing a little bit. So in the Vipassana practices, sometimes they come with a challenge, which makes doing them uh, uh, taste sometimes like, um, like difficulty. Um, so I was being noble in that practice, and then I went to the Pauk Monastery, and um, everybody was really happy. And it's like, oh, this must be a study monastery. They can't be meditating, because the they seem to have all the time in the day. If I ask them a question, they give me this beautiful, full attention. And I've never saw that in someone practicing Vipassana because they're so uh, in it, um, in their dukkha. And I thought, this would be such a nice place to stay, but I probably wouldn't make very much spiritual progress here because everybody's so uh, already content. Like, what, what are they doing here? And I got curious about it, and then I started practicing it, and then um, started seeing, yeah, I'm a lifer. Uh, I'm going to do this for, I'm already committed. I, I, I've already seen that um, there's no way I would live with a mind. Now that I know the difference, there's no way I want to live and give myself many more decades of my old habits. Like, no, thank you. And I taste the potential of a heart that's free. And now that I know the difference, this is what I want to give myself in the world. So I already knew I was going to do it for a while, but I never had taken up um, absorption practice um, for very long. Uh, So I thought, well, I'll I'll just try this. It took a while to see it as its own practice. You're not supposed to be um, overly analytical. You're not supposed to um, watch your mind and keep it from wandering and be, you know, catch every little detail. It's actually about being simple and even simpler and even simpler and being content with that simplicity, which is very counterculture um, to our dominant American culture and now what may be the global culture as it speeds up. And there was this little cultural doubt like, um, I worked so hard to have as little advancement as I had in the culture, and now I'm actually becoming content with my breath, which means I'll be very unemployable <laughs> after this. Um, and this, this, I may be really shooting myself in the foot here, but I'm going to just go out in this direction and see what it's like to, um, to do this. And... 
and then I'm, I might not be employable afterwards. Um, my mind might be so simple that uh, I won't know how to take up a complex subject or use it in a multitasking way. Um, would that I was that lucky. <laughs> would that that actually was the outcome uh, that I learned as a type of prolonged simplicity. And it, it had its hardships because um, something that sneaks in is a goal to be simple. And you kind of know that there's a little bit of monastic uh, one-upsmanship about who has a little bit more of an absorbed mind than the other. And you know who has it. Because um, you're all reporting publicly. And so then if you're not having like somebody else and you're like, uh, I'm one of those slow yogis or then you have a little bit more in somebody else and you get puffed up and that actually blocks you from being simple and content because now you're trying to actually like work your program and get your badges uh, in absorption. Absorption is not something that you build egoically. Um, You do have to, and initially because we have so many distracted habits, you do have to intend to be present But what ends up taking over is not more and more effort, but the sweetness of being simple, the sweetness of being present. And that actually starts working in your favor. So it's not that you are putting in more and more effort to be non-distracted. You're non-distracted, you're with your breath, your mind says, I've tasted better things than this, what am I doing here? And then you see that mindset is so agitating and not actually full of contentment. And you start to feel like, wow, when I am with my breath, at certain times, it's very fulfilling. And it's on par with other transient experiences I've had, but it's it's quite simple. Then that actual begins to nurture uh, the mind uh, and the heart towards um, giving more of its priority to something as simple as breathing. And that's what expands. to become an organic absorption is not an effortful mind that, that presses its teeth together and is non-distracted. Sometimes we need to do that because old habits are really pushing us around. And it's like, that's, I'm not here to do that. I'm not here to rehearse my resentments. I'm not here to polish my speeches I'm gonna make in the future. Like, please, not more of that. I really wanna be here. So sometimes we do put in effort just so we don't feed old habits. But what ends up supporting absorption is when you start to taste the well-being that can come from something as simple as the warmth in your hands or the the rhythmic breathing and that you've always had this, but you've been looking elsewhere for your well-being, elsewhere for your contentment. Your own heart, as it, be, as it has moments of collection, moments of non-complication, moments of non-fragmentation, non-restlessness, all these haggard, agitated states, that also begins to be a sweetness. And we do cling to it. There actually is nothing more beautiful than the beauty of your own heart and mind. So if you're ever going to cling to something, of course you would cling to those moments of heart. They're who you want to be. And there's a deep longing to finally be that content. There's a deep longing to be that whole. And we do hope we can stay there 
So we have a moment where we're feeling that and we want to stay there. And one of the promises of this path is that actually is the final outcome, is a stream of heart and mind that is not um, afflicted by restlessness or fragmentation. One of the ways to help that, uh, to help cultivate that is to begin to teach the heart and mind not to be so complicated, not to be so fragmented by all the stimulation of the world, but to begin to know wholeness right in the stream of now. Um, So it's a good first taste, but uh, you can't stay there yet. You can't stay there yet because all you've done is take all your habits and give them a nap. And it's like a, a baby, a colicky baby that's crying and you're loving it, and then it goes into peaceful sleep. And you know that's good for the, the child, that it's getting asleep. And you know it's good for you too. But you don't want your child to stay asleep forever. And you know it's just taking a nap. Um, so you take your break when you can. When you go into these absorbed states, they feel very simple. At times they arise not because you're efforting, They just sort of like the sun peering between the clouds. It's like, I didn't do anything different. And all of a sudden, it wasn't so complicated. It wasn't uh, something else. It wasn't so effortful. And I was just watching my breath come and go. And it seemed like a child could do it. It just was not that complicated. And it was very fulfilling. And it only lasted so long. It's like, great, you saw the nature of conditioned hearts and minds. They can be whole temporarily. They can be whole and complete in a stream of experience. And that's a good taste. And again, of course, you're gonna to wanna to cling to that. I mean, if anything, again, if anything is sweet, it's the beauty of your own heart when it's not fragmented, when it feels its own uh, well-being from within. So it's just good to know that. And you all do it. Um, and then you'll suffer the consequences. You won't understand why clinging to the Dharma is bad and why you can't do it again because when you do it again, you're trying to make it happen. When it happened on its own, it arose out of conditions. So it'd be like planting a garden in the spring and it grew and you're like, this is amazing. Then you plant it in the fall and it's like, what happened? The same seeds, it was the ground, and everything just grew and died. It's like, yeah, that was the season. It wasn't supposed to grow. And then you do it again, oh, I nailed it. it was, I planted it, but this time I only had this much water, and it just blew up, it was a garden. But I did in the fall, and everything just died. It's not so much your effort that's making it happen. And that was something I got really tangled up in uh, when I started tasting these things and thinking I had done something that particular afternoon that I could repeat. Um, As they visit more and more, they begin to teach you as your own heart knows contentment in something as simple as the present moment, the stream of the present. Um, It begins to teach you a lot There's something that you can't know until your heart is content with breathing, is content with pulsing, is content with just saying metaphrases just for that moment's experience of being simple and heart opened. 
your own heart then it begins to instruct you what true contentment looks like. It's not about clinging, but it is about presence. It's about being open with agenda, but still willing to offer your heart in a certain direction. And that will instruct you more than a than hundred books ever could. Your own heart begins to instruct you what its freedom tastes like. And it's different than you can conceive of it. And it begins to show you if you cling to it, crave to it, identify with it, you end up blocking it. You're actually creating uh, more difficult conditions to have another moment where a string of breaths is really contenting because now you've tangled your ego up in it or you're trying too hard um, to make it happen again. Having loved what I learned about absorption, and I did it about 20 years ago, um, I've learned a lot in the last 20 years about it. One is that um, I got very ill after a year of being a monk in Burma, and because of my chronic illness, a certain kind of absorption is not open to me. And I've suffered a lot over that, over wanting it again, being frustrated with the illness because it's blocking this underlying yearning to know that type of freedom. But my illness has taught me a lot about um, not clinging. And that's actually a deeper way of finally becoming free, not in absorption, but actually a heart and mind that knows how not to cling ends up being a mind that's not afflicted. Um, So my illness has actually taught me a lot about that. But for a long time, uh, it split me off from being able to do classical absorption practices. Um, and it's been 20 years of that. Um, and I, I, it, it's just I do not have the conditions to absorb um, as I did when I was in Burma. And uh, learning about the aspiration to have that type of well-being, but the torture of wishing I had it, and that setting me up to be antagonistic to the conditions I'm in um, is just suffering. So uh, that's one thing I've learned. Another thing I've learned is that um, there's this very unfortunate human thing, which is very common, that there are, there. I can count about five different schools of absorption practice, of jhana practice, that I know from uh, Theravada. They differ in in the type of submersion that somebody experienced. So there's light submersion, where you're basically here and now, you got your breath in the center, you're aware of other things, but you don't feel all that distracted. So you can say, yeah, I was somewhat absorbed in the breath, it was steady. Um, I was aware of other things, but they weren't distracting. That's one type of absorption. And there's a certain school of absorption that says, yeah, that's functional. You absorb that much, and then you can actually see how the mind's working. Any more than that is excessive. And that's the language you have to watch out for. I'm going to give you a little tip if you ever get into debates about absorption. Everybody thinks that the depth that they've achieved is what the Buddha meant. Anything lighter than that is not quite there. Anything more than that is excessive and unnecessary. And I find that that's one thing that ends up 
distinguishing these schools as people get somewhat preoccupied with the love they have for their teacher, with the direct experiences they had, is that um, anything more than that seems absurdly obsessive. Like you don't need more than that to understand how your mind works. Anything less than that, and people start to feel like, but it was so helpful to go that deep. And I, I saw them things that, so you have to go at least that deep to see what I saw. And so there can be a reinforced belief that um, a certain depth is necessary. What I'd like to put in your hands is a different frame. And, and uh, if you could hear this, you would save yourself a lot of torment. Um, there are depths. Uh, they tend to be soothing and helpful. If you identify with them or attach to them or get rigid around them, you'll suffer. Absorb to as much as you can to try to get more out of your practice than the conditions are giving you is to start striving for something that's not the conditions you're in. So to be at a certain level to absorb, but secretly wish you had more or to judge yourself because you don't have more of what you think is possible. That's wrong view. That's a tormented view that is not in the conditions you're in and cultivating what is possible in the conditions you're in. It's to be seeking and to think freedom is elsewhere. That freedom is some other time, some other place, and you're working now to get there. That's a common frame, that's a conventional frame of how we get through life. But that's not how it actually ends up growing. And the more you do that, the more you undermine your ability to absorb right then and there in the conditions you find yourself. So uh, please appreciate the ability your heart and mind have to find contentment in something as simple as your heartbeat, metaphrases, your breath, uh, anything that you're giving yourself over to and notice the well-being that's achievable when you do that. And then uh, different depths will happen and there's no upper limit, sorry, there's no lower <laughs> limit. Uh, there's no limit to how absorbed your heart and mind can be. Even the Buddha didn't find the upper limit of what was humanly possible. It is said that he did more than anybody on the planet at that time uh, but when one of his students says, you're the best Buddha there has ever been, and he said, yeah, have you seen other Buddhas? And it's possible other Buddhas had actually greater paramis, greater capacities to absorb out past what the Buddha did. I, it's, it's not stated uh, directly, but I think that's why the monastics kept practicing after they were awakened, because you could always uh, absorb a little further and then see a little more deeper and be more rested for when you engage the world how you want to. You're coming from a more rested place. So uh, don't berate yourself. A-rate yourself <laughs> with your little hooves for whatever degree your mind knows moments of being content with simple experiences and see if you can uh, put the coffee straw right there and sip there. This is a heart that's content. Now it's, it is difficult if 
you're absorbed for half a breath. It's a very hard thing to, in that moment, know the type of contentment that was there for that breath. But if you start having you know, several breaths in a row, that's a time where you could, in that moment, say, okay, I've done this before, I'm also doing it. One thing I'm going to take note of is in those moments, there is a non-affliction. This mind that can be tied up by all the worldly events isn't in that moment. This mind is not fractured. It's not restless. It's not um, tormented. All the more if you have a breadth of absorption and if you have a depth of absorption, you have a little more window to begin exploring the contentment that's available in your own heart and mind. One of the things, um, well, I'll, I'll just add on to that, that absorptions are not something you build. It's the willingness to let go of everything else on a whole nother level. We all could let go a little further. So unconsciously, our minds are keeping a lot of things ready in case we need them. So we think I'm giving my full attention but there, there are parts of our mind that are just off-site, off but they're preoccupied. And so I want to recommend as one way to go in is to, uh, without not through striving, but through a type of devotional surrender, I let go of my complete past. It does not serve me in this moment. I let go of my complete and all possible futures. It does not serve me. I let go of all the ways I could look at this present moment, the present moment around me, inside of me, and I put my full heart into just this one simple thing. There's a tone of humility, there's a tone of wholeheartedness, a tone of devotion, a type of surrender. You can't expect results right then and there. If you did, there's a little part of you that's not humble, that's not surrendered, a little part of you that's seeking. Be simpler than that. Be more devoted than that. Just, I'm, I keep trying. This one breath, I give my whole heart to just breathing, to just taking steps as I walk. Even though it's repetitive, I think I've done it before, I'm gonna do my whole heart in this simple practice. I let go of expectations, I let go of accomplishments. It's a lot about letting go, but then taking what is left over after you let go of all the complexity and then devoting that realm of heart and mind to uh, whatever you're intending. Sincere metaphrases, sincere compassion phrases, uh, moments where forgiveness is very intuitive. You can absorb your heart in many directions, but give your whole heart simply, humbly, with full surrender uh, into that, and just be patient. And that's as far as the ego can go. You do that, and you're ripening the conditions where it begins to happen more organically, and it begins to happen on a scale that you can't construct. And then you get to see heart, parts of your heart and mind that are not egoically, that are not responding to your ego needs. It's actually the nature of your heart at times to be whole and to be beautiful.
one of the things that the Buddha did um, is uh, look at factors and factors of mind and how they work in groups. And when they work in a certain way, they, um, they have a type of impact on your heart and mind. And so he looked at uh, five factors that are very supportive for absorbing. One was the ability to aim your attention. And if I said, look at that wall, you could look over there. If I said, look at that wall, you can look over there. So you can always aim your attention. There's this word, vitaka, which is not just to point your mind and then get distracted, but you really, um, you really look and give your whole attention, your whole heart, at one time in one direction. So we do that with this word, vitaka. Vichara is to the quality of mind that sustains that attention over time. So you really look at the breath, but then your attention dwindles. So your ability to have the vitaka was there, but it takes longer for the vichara to ripen so you can sustain your attention. Both these two are a little bit more effortful. You're intending for it to happen. But there's also piti, there's interest. If you, like the breath goes through phases, same breath, same day, same schedule, and some days it's actually interesting, and some days it's really uh, repetitive and boring. The breath doesn't change much, but at times your mind gets interested in it. So you can actually welcome uh, interest. You can't force interest, but you can welcome interest. And if your mind uh, is getting bored of the breath, probably interest, the factor of interest has diminished. So that's just the coming and going of interest, but you can also see if you can blow on the coals and revive some interest. And if it's not directly in the breath, you might look up here at these statues and say, this is about human nobility. And if I remember it's about human nobility, yeah, I'm gonna be with the breath. So it wasn't going for the interest in the breath itself. It was opening up a little and remembering your intentions and possibilities. And then the mind brightens up and then you take that brightened mind and you give it back to the breath. So blow on the coals and revive your interest. Um, and you can only do so much, any more is striving, but you also do too little and just wait for it to come and go passively. You can actually recultivate your interest. The fourth factor is sukha, and it's uh, happiness. And while PT is a little bit more uplifting energetically, uh, I have found sukha to be a little more contented and settled. So you blow on the coals, you're interested, but then you also settle in and see if it can be, the meditation you're doing can be a source of your well-being and contentment. And you'll have moments, it's like uh, pedaling a bike, you have to get up a little steam, and then you stop pedaling or you pedal gently, but you have momentum, and you just enjoy the fact that you have this momentum so at times breathing will be interesting, but also at times breathing, just breathing, or just metaphrases, or just walking, or just tasting your food, simple devotional present time experiences, you'll be awash in contentment and you'll be somewhat um, perplexed by it. Like I am, I've never been this content, but what I'm doing I've done every day, 
But in this particular moment, I'm really taken by grass. <laughs> I've been looking at grass my whole life, but I'd never seen grass before. And if I only looked at grass the rest of my life, that'd be a good life spent. Like, wow, this is a, I usually have to work harder for like awe. You know, I think I have to go travel the world for awe. And all the while it was right here, just looking at, you know, one rock. It's like, who knew rocks were so beautiful? If the mind has this natural taste of contentment, that's the specter of sukha. It helps with absorption. And sukha comes and goes. So sometimes you'll have to be more effortful to stay with the breath. Sometimes you're held to simple breathing by the fact that your mind is content. It tends to be more natural absorption when contentment is a part of the practice. You don't have to work so hard in those moments. The final factor is that you end up using an underlying faculty of the mind is that it actually only can have one object at a time. And your mind is like uh, an incredibly caffeinated um, uh, sheepdog. And it's bouncing between so many things and then trying to tell a story that makes sense of all these things. And you have it pinballing around, trying to make sense of the world. But it actually has a built-in limitation. It really only can connect to one thing at a time. So it has to move incredibly fast to, to spin all these sensitor experiences into one coherent story. And it's fatiguing that it ha- it's always trying to do that. But you end up using this underlying capacity of mind to say, just take one thing at a time. That's really what you're doing anyhow. And you don't have to take in a thousand things at once. Just take in one thing at a time. This is called ekagata, and ek is the Pali Sanskrit word uh, for one. It gets translated as one-pointedness. Pointedness um, was too suggestive in my mind that I had to get it into a point. I worked way too hard to make that happen. For me, it's like a one frame. And sometimes the frame is quite large, but it's not torn in two directions. Like you're taking in a view on a mountainside and you actually can take in a broad view and you're not distracted and there's one frame. Or sometimes in that broad view, you see a horse running through a meadow down below and there's a really small bit of detail you're tracking. You still have a sense of expansiveness, but there is one little point of detail that's really captivating. I don't try to take my whole mind and crush it down into one point. So I like one frame or uh, the one seatedness. Because your mind only can do one thing at a time, you're using this factor to support the simplicity of being absorbed. If you're doing absorption practice, these five factors are what you're mindful of. You're trying to see how's my ability to aim and sustain those are the two work, working uh, factors. How is my interest as it comes and it goes and can I cultivate it? How's my underlying sense of uh, contentment with something as simple as sustaining my attention in something as repetitive and obvious and familiar as my heartbeat or my breath? And then can I rest in one frame of attention versus several multitasking um, so if you're, 
if you're going in this direction, these five factors end up being what you're, uh, what you're cultivating. If you're doing the merge practice, I wouldn't worry so much about it. You can, it's another list you can visit. Sometimes you can be investigative and sometimes you're working on these five factors that help absorb. Um, so if you're doing a more merge practice, uh, it's not a list that you have to stress out because now there's dozens of lists. But if you are tacking out and trying to look at your own heart and mind and its wholeness and, its, uh, and trying to welcome that forward, whether it's through breathing, body, any type of samatha practice, compassion, loving kindness, equanimity practice, these five factors end up playing a central role because when they arise together in, uh, in harmony, that's actually what's going on when you have a stream of experiences and you're not distracted and you're content and you feel that type of wholeness. Since we're a working culture, I know you're already trying to aim and sustain. You've already been doing those two. So what I would welcome forward is contentment with simplicity if you're trying to get a little bit more absorption uh, and a little bit more of a, an ability to devote, devote yourself to humble, simple contentment, doing one simple thing and cultivate a little bit more of that attitude that tends not to be so available to us uh, if you've uh, been influenced by our dominant culture. Play with it. Uh, experience it. Um, don't beat yourself up by an impossible standard you're trying to meet. You all have some ability to absorb. Um, your mind would be crazy if it couldn't. It's already pretty crazy, but uh, you all have some ability to absorb and it is some of what is feeding you already. Um, so that's what I wanted to encourage you uh, at this point in your retreat and tonight. So, that's many words, many images, many complexities. I invite you all to let that disperse. Let it be motivation, but let's take a moment to guide ourselves back towards something simple, something present, Since the bell is a little far away, I won't ring it. Imagine the bell ringing. Imagine yourself absorbing into the sound. Oh, what a bell. And carry on for the practice. We'll have a different type of uh, chanting tonight. Um, so uh, walk. I hope to see some of you in the last hit for the chanting. But uh, enjoy contentment where you can find it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.
donate.